The year is 1818. Dozens of Africans, free and enslaved, are gathering daily in the Plaza de Armas Square in Havana, Cuba. No, they are not gathering to dance or sing activities commonly associated with Havana. They are gathering to protest, to demand emancipation once and for all, to be seen fully and wholly. The year is 1818 and the Dos Hermanos captive sold to Cuba in 1795 and declared free in increments during the turn of the century are gathering in the square. Of the many who are congregating, it is the women who are the majority. The women are coming to seek freedom, not only for themselves, but for their children, those born and unborn, their children, those with them and those sold away. I imagine them coming to the plaza pleading, some of them weeping, many of them longing for a home they were taken from some 23 years earlier. I imagine these sojourning women coming to the square as a last resort, a last hope, an opportunity to be seen and heard, maybe for the first or last time in their lives. Historians Aiznara Diaz and Maria Fuentes offer us a look into black mothering in an imperial system where African women were slaves first, mothers second. Diaz and Fuentes suggest that African women's primary purpose was to produce children for the sake of empire to give birth to a child, preferably male, for the purpose of monetary gain, for the purpose of garnering and maintaining power in the new world, of building a legacy on pillaged property through pillaged bodies. These women come bringing every bit of pain and suffering to the center of town, hoping that all of who they are will be witnessed for the fullness of their humanity to be acknowledged, for their children to be protected in a world that views them as second-class citizens. They come using the little bit of agency they might have left, demanding liberty. I wonder how many of us have been there in our anguish and our agony, praying that someone would hear our cries just one time. I, I wonder if you've been there this year, perhaps, when so much grief has compounded. We struggle to see clearly. We're so forlorn that hope seems like light years away. Have you been there needing to be seen, needing to be heard. The woman at the well had. No, not the infamous Samaritan woman who met Jesus at a well in John's gospel. You know, the one who had five husbands and was working on a sixth. Not that woman. Long before that woman, there was another woman, a woman with a child. No, not Mary, mother of Jesus. It is Christmas season after all, but long before the birth in a filthy manger, there was another woman, 
a woman commissioned to give birth to a hopeful promise. We meet Hagar, the Egyptian handmaid to Sarai and Abram in the 16th chapter of Genesis. Sarai at this point in the story has been unable to produce a child. It has been over 10 years since Abram and Sarai settled in Canaan, 10 or more years since he'd taken Sarai as his wife and no offspring to show for it. They are desperate. Sarai, eager to fulfill the divine promise that many nations would come of Abram, offers up her maid, Hagar, to produce an heir for them. You see, the cult classic Handmaid's Tale didn't come out of nowhere. Sarai gives Hagar to Abram as a surrogate wife, not as a concubine. Hebrew Bible scholar Will Gaffney reminds us that concubinage does not exist in Israel, biblical Israel, and it generally refers to sexual use of subordinate women. Sarai and Hagar, Gaffney says, are co-wives but there is hierarchy between them. Once Hagar becomes pregnant, Sarai starts to despise her. The hierarchy becomes more pronounced as Sarai, the primary wife, begins viciously blaming Hagar for her suffering and misfortune, treating Hagar so brutally that the young pregnant woman, the surrogate for the promise, flees into the desert away from her abusers. Hagar is not unlike the women of Dos Hermanos in Cuba, marginalized with little to no control over their wombs, giving birth to objects that will help secure a promise that they will be left out of, marginalized women whose previous lives get erased, whose statuses in the hierarchy render them nearly invisible. Hagar flees into the wilderness. What she was seeking, I don't know. Where she was going, I'm not sure she even knew that, but, but she runs away alone and scared, and I imagine that she had no food, no, no water, just a hope that maybe there was freedom on the other side of this unfortunate situation, just a hope, a prayer, a desire, to be seen. 200 years after the uprising at the square in Cuba, parents find themselves fleeing their pillaged and impoverished homes in Central and South America, desperate to escape the violence that was instigated by centuries of colonization, leaving everything behind and risking their lives to cross the deadly waters in the Rio Grande Valley for a hope. It is that hope that leads Hagar to a spring in the desert. And the angel of the Lord approaches her saying, Hagar, maid of Sarai, what are you doing here? Where have you come from and where are you going? Hagar says, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. 
Hagar doesn't answer the question about where she's going, only where she's coming from. Sometimes our trauma is so thick, our grief is so deep that all we can see is where we've been. The person who hurt us years ago, the church that excommunicated us, the death that halted our dreams. In that captive space, a sense of direction gets lost. There is no plan for a future. There is little regard for the dangers of the wilderness, the dangers of the Rio Grande, only a sense of urgency. However risky the journey may be, the angel of the Lord sees her. And protective of this pregnant woman, the angel tells her to go back to her mistress, to go back to the ones who've mistreated her, even if only for the duration of her pregnancy. In her book, Making a Way Out of No Way, Monica Coleman suggests that sometimes liberation is not possible. But survival and quality of life are. I'm sure this was a difficult command to hear, not just for Hagar, but for many of us who would probably look at that angel of the Lord and offer them a few choice words that I can't say in this sanctuary right now. But perhaps liberation wasn't fully available to Hagar in that moment. And for the sake of survival, the angel sends her back. But following that command the angel offers Hagar a promise. I will so greatly multiply your offspring that they cannot be counted. Now you have conceived and shall bear a son. You shall name him Yishmael, for the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He shall be a wild ass of a man. I can say that. That's in the Bible. With his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall live at odds with all his kin. This is a difficult promise. This is a difficult hope, but a hope nonetheless. It isn't the promise of total liberation from enslavement. She's told to return to her mistress. It isn't the promise that she and her son Ishmael will live a drama-free life. She's told that he will have the world against him. The hope may not even be in the promise of many nations that she will never get to see. Today, many in our nations have to reckon with a similar difficult promise, with a similar complex hope. Regardless of who's president, many will remain poor. Regardless of how much outreach we try to do, many will remain housing and food insecure. It's hard to hope in a world full of complex and intersecting injustices, but there is a hope in this passage for Hagar, for you, for me. The Lord has given heed to your affliction. 
I love the way another translation puts it. You are to name your son Yishmael, which means God pays attention because Adonai has paid attention to your misery. God paid attention to her. God sees Hagar and God hears Hagar. We don't know much about Hagar's past. Her story was given little attention by the authors, but God pays attention. It is presumed that Hagar is not even the name her Egyptian parents would have given her because it is Hebrew, but God pays attention. God sees her for who she really is, far from home, stripped of her identity, forced to carry and push out Abram's promise, and God pays attention, giving her a promise of her own. And in this moment, with the very last bit of agency she might have had in her body, Hagar opens up her mouth and gives a name to the one who paid attention. El Roy, she cries, for you have seen me. This woman stripped of so much integrity Trafficked and disenfranchised, lifts her voice to name God, El Roy, the one who sees me. Biblical scholar Phyllis Tribble points out that Hagar is the only person in the entire biblical canon to name God for herself. Not the writers, not the editors. She doesn't call upon the God of her oppressors. She doesn't invoke the deity of her slaveholders. She names God for herself. I imagine Hagar singing it, like the mothers who came before her sang, like Hannah sang after the birth of Samuel, like Mary sang in preparation for the birth of Jesus. I imagine Hagar singing it. The one who sees me, the one who notices, the one who hears my, my every cry, the one who calls me out of the dry place and to the waters opens my eyes. Elroy, you who sees me struggling in the wilderness, you who sees me thirsty, you who sees me homeless, you who sees me preparing to birth a child into a system that doesn't want him to survive, you who notices me wandering aimlessly in the desert, you who paid attention in my moment of despair, have I really seen you and remained alive? The one who sees me, the one who Notices the one 
But the place of their encounter is forever marked. This is why the well has been called Be'er Lahai Roi, the authors say. Well of the living one, the one who lives and sees. a child without her consent. This woman who has been mistreated by her supervisors. This woman whose masculine Hebrew name means foreign thing. God sees the foreign thing. God sees the immigrant mother. Dolores Williams reminds us that Hagar, this immigrant mother, steps into the unusual male role, well, the usual male role of receiving a promise of numerous prosperity. Naming shrines, wells, and other places was done by men. God pays attention to this immigrant mother and blesses her with something that is usually reserved for men. Can you imagine? And as the story goes, God provides for Hagar over and over again in her wilderness experiences. This won't be her last time in the wilderness, her last time homeless, her last time thirsty. Her interactions with God are not salvific by modern standards. Every system of injustice won't be abolished by the end of her lifetime, but perhaps the hope for Hagar Perhaps the hope for the women at the plaza in 1818, perhaps the hope for all of us is not in God save us or God deliver us, but in God with us, Emmanuel. This is a Christmas story. God sees us and God with us over and over again. We are seen by God, and God seeing us is God loving us. God's vision is God's provision, God's protection, God's love in action. And if we are to be the hands and feet of God in the world, we must see each other the way God sees us. We must open each other's eyes to the wells and the wilderness. We must pour rivers into each other's deserts. Do you not perceive it, Isaiah says? 
Somebody in a wilderness of their own should be able to name the spot of their freedom the way Hagar names hers. They should be able to say it was at Myers Park Baptist when God saw me when I lost my home and someone opened up theirs. It was at the corner of trade and Tryon when God saw me hungry and offered me a sandwich for when our throats were parched, you saw us, God. When there was no room in the inn, you saw us, God. When in May we realized we'd be in this situation a lot longer than we thought, you saw us, God. When in June we found ourselves weary and worn from the repeated violence against black and brown folk, you saw us, God. When in September we hit the six-month mark, you saw us, God. When in November we found ourselves full of election anxiety, you were with us, God. Emmanuel and Elroy at the well and the protest. Emmanuel and Elroy in the hospitals and the polling booths. You are with us. You see us. You love us. Nine and a half months you've been with us. And you've seen us as we've carried an unexpected load. And by your grace, might we give birth to something new in the days to come? Might we anticipate that even out of great sorrow and agony, even out of great turmoil and weariness, that there is yet a promise in your seeing us? Is there yet a new possibility? For Hagar, the possibility was the well. And not the well as a final destination, but the well as an adventure. For, for God shows us the clearest version of God's self in the midst of adventure. Whether it is water springing from a rock or honey from a rock in Psalms, the divine unforeseen possibilities are limitless. And so it is. As the last Sunday of the year and many are looking forward to leaving this year behind and embracing some sort of hope that lies in a new year but all of our troubles won't vanish at midnight on january 1st no one is coming to save us from 2020 some of us, like Hagar, are so busy running from the places of our misfortune, so ready to throw the year away. I've seen articles entitled, The Year That Never Happened, or, or The Canceled Year, but, but before you throw it away, my friends, might I remind you that if you are listening to this, you survived it. This terrible year, you survived it. Might I suggest that you mark this place, this year, by naming it something that signifies that even though the world turned upside down, there was an Emmanuel experience. There was an Elroy encounter that kept us. There is a hope that kept us. And might you be able to sing about it, even in the face of uncertainty, 
sing of the wells where we got our help in the wilderness.